Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Sister Laura Nettles, who is another Franciscan Sister of Perpetual Adoration and is also the Executive Director of Mission and Social Justice at Viterbo University in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Hi, Sister Laura. Welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Hey, thanks, Julia. (laughs) Uh, This is going to be a fun conversation because, well, we've been living this life together for nearly two decades. Absolutely. I don't know if we've ever recorded any of our conversations before. (laughs) Probably better we don't record all of our conversations. (laughs) Right, right. And... I've heard you tell your vocation story many times and many different ways over the years, yet I'd love to hear how you talk about it today. How did you come to know that you were meant to be a Franciscan Sister of Perpetual Adoration and also serve in academia and in justice ministries? Well, certainly the academia part is probably the easier one. I knew from a very young child that I wanted to teach. I didn't know what I wanted to teach, but I knew that I wanted to teach. How I wanted to get into it, I was first a band director, right? And then I got into theology. I feel like if I were to change from theology to something else, I'd still stay in teaching. That's been a consistent in my life. As far as being a sister, mm, that's a little more complicated for me, right? I certainly didn't really know sisters at all when I was growing up. The church that I went to mainly in New Mexico, we didn't have sisters. We didn't know what that meant. I remember in the past, I had my parish priest tell me I should be a nun. And I kind of laughed at him because I thought nuns just sat in the back of church and took care of the kids. While I wanted to teach, I didn't want to take care of the little kids. So it wasn't really until mm, my adult years that I started thinking about it. My second teaching job, I was up in the Bay Area and I was teaching at an all boys school run by the Christian brothers. And across the street was an all girls school run by the sisters of St. Joseph of Crondelet. Looking back, I can say I was secretly watching what the sisters were doing. And I was really attracted to their way of life. But I don't know that I had consciously decided that I wanted to be a sister. I was just sort of watching. And one day I was chaperoning a high school dance and happened to be standing next to one of the sisters. And out of the middle of nowhere, I blurted out, I think I want to be a sister. (laughs) And it freaked me out because I'm such a logical, heady person that I couldn't believe that those words came out without my forethought of that happening. So I ended up spending the rest of the dance avoiding that sister and actually tried to avoid her for about three months. Mm -hmm. And finally, she just sent me a a nice little message in the mail and said, you know, Laura, we should probably talk about this. And so it was really with her and with the CSJs that I started discerning. As I got through the process of discerning, as I continued to discern and I realized that, yes, this is what I was called to. I realized that in my childhood, there were lots of signs pointing me to being a sister. I just didn't see them when I was younger. Now that you're on the inside, what are the things about the lifestyle of the sisterhood that keeps you here? So the idea of community, I think, is the most important, right? I can have a relationship with God. I don't need to be a sister to have that relationship with God. 
But being able to be part of a community where I get to be part of doing some things that are so much greater than myself, that's how I feel like I'm called to serve God. And that's what attracted me about the CSJs to what attracted me about FSPA. And it's why I continue. Mm, Yeah. We'll come back to this theme of community a little later in the conversation because there's a lot we could talk about there. Uh, (laughs) But I'd love for you to describe how you came to know that you were called to be Franciscan and not join the CSJs. So the CSJs are wonderful, wonderful women with a real focus on social justice. And as I started discerning and started working with a spiritual director, I realized very early on that I was called to religious life, that I truly felt like God was calling me to be a sister. And I was talking to a great group of women, but something didn't feel right. And it made no sense because they are an amazing group. I have nothing negative to say whatsoever about the CSJs, but it just felt like something was missing. So in the course of spiritual direction, my spiritual director started asking me questions about my own spiritual journey or what matters to me. And and as we started to talk, we slowly unraveled the fact that Franciscan and St. Francis had been a huge part of my growing up. I'm a huge animal lover, grew up with lots of animals around, always had an appreciation for St. Francis's care for creation. But I realized that I went to church uh, at Franciscan churches. I grew up in New Mexico, which is heavily influenced by the Franciscans because Franciscans were some of the early founders, not entire founders of New Mexico, but certainly they had an early presence there. So once my spiritual director said, you should be Franciscan, I went and Googled Francis. Mm -hmm. And the more I read about St. Francis, the more I was drawn to that particular way of being. And so it was my spiritual director that had some friends in FSPA and said, why don't you check this community out? Once I really committed to the Franciscan, then that thing that didn't seem to fit with the CSJs fit perfectly. So you moved from the West to the Midwest and you took a leap of faith with this Franciscan community in Southwest Wisconsin on the Mississippi River. Very different culture and climate than very different. Yes, very different. (laughs) And obviously it's working because here you are, here we are together in this life. I just wonder how you have come to know what our community's charism in particular Mm -hmm. is over the years. Maybe we need to define what charism is, first of all. And then how do we say like what a Franciscan charism is broadly and then our congregation's charism specifically? Those are only small topics there, Julia. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) I have like 10 podcasts on charism, (laughs) right? I, I think of charism as just sort of the unique way in which a community goes about living their call to serve God and to serve the people of God. And so Franciscan charism really is about relationships and building relationships. If I had to distill Francis's whole message down, it's that we're all connected and that we're all in this together and we have to care for each other. And it's interesting, I think when I first came to FSPA, it'll be 20 years ago in January, I was drawn by uh, our tagline, I think we still use, right? Modern lives, sacred traditions, right? So that there was this emphasis on Eucharistic adoration. That was a good draw for me. And I certainly would have named off our charism, I think, 20 years ago by talking about all the different ministries that our sisters are in. Mm -hmm. 
Today, I would still highlight some of those ministries, right? Because our sisters have done some amazing work. They continue to do amazing work. But I would actually characterize our charism as presence, Mm. being loving presence in the world, showing up, being there for people. You know, it's not about the doing and I have to check off all these ministries or I have my to-do list. It's literally about our sisters being there for one another and for the world. Yeah, this may be unusual, but I actually agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) That happens once in a while. (laughs) No, I totally agree. I'll just like unpack it a little bit for myself. And and you can tell me if I'm a heretic because you're actually a theologian. Um, But I, (laughs) I, I tend to think that As we are centered in our contemplative practice of adoration, and we come to know Christ's love in this outpouring of the Eucharist, which is Christ's body broken and shared for all, we then are called to imitate that presence that we encounter in the Eucharist, which is quiet, which is loving, which is powerful, which is strong, which is impactful by the way that we are then present to other people. So there's this beauty. It feels like actually we're contemplatives that are apostolically present Mm -hmm. because of the way that we're bringing Christ's brokenness to others and we're with them in their brokenness. So that takes a lot of different forms. It can be as simple as someone who's a pastoral companion or listener in a jail or in a parish or an academic setting like yourself or a spiritual director. But it could also be someone who's at a food pantry and is simply listening to the people who come in the door or someone who's working in a hospital. We can be in a lot of different places as long as we're recognizing that we're instruments of Christ's Eucharistic love in those places. And that's what Francis of Assisi did, right? He was torn between like going off into a mountainside or into a cave and praying and just being with God intimately and coming back and being present to the poor and the marginalized. He realized that he had to go to the cave to be able to be present to those who needed him most. But the great part about Francis is that he didn't start foundations. He didn't have checklists of things to do. He literally just went and hung out with people. Yeah. Yeah. But he would also say that he was more enriched by his opportunity to spend time with folks than he ever did anything for people. Mm. Right. So it's, it's a very different approach than instead of doing things for people. It's just being with people. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of him and the early brothers living in the leper colonies, living alongside mm-hmm. and with and sharing daily life with yeah. those who the rest of society considered dead, literally dead. It makes me curious about the Franciscan charism in the world today, which is present, I think, in every continent <laughs> and and in every culture, I would imagine, Absolutely. pretty much. And I wonder, from your vantage, how do you see us sharing life with those whose society considers to be lepers now? We have to show up, right? I mean, that's that's the big thing, is that we have to be present. It would be easy in today's world and the craziness and the busyness, right? That we get really bogged down sometimes in the doing of things that we forget to just go and be, or that sometimes we just get so exhausted that we want to retreat to our own space and we just 
forget to be. But I think really what we are called to do is to show up in the spaces where people are, mm-hmm. right? And it's sometimes harder to find those spaces because society wants to uh, ignore those spaces or shut those spaces down, mm-hmm. right? But that's where we are called to be. Of course, I'm sure you've been talking with your other guests about the Synod on Synodality. And in the process of the Synod, each continent was able to prepare a document. And so I got to be part of some listening sessions and input sessions for the North American document. And it's a beautiful document in many ways, but there's something that I fundamentally disagree with in the document that I think illustrates my point. It says that the church is called to go to the margins. And here's my challenge with that. I believe the church is on the margins and it's those of us that have privilege, that have opportunities, that are in the center, that we forget that the church is really on the margins. And so for Franciscans, we have to be on the margins because that's where Jesus is. You know, Jesus is not necessarily in a big, beautiful, wonderful cathedral. Yes, beautiful things can happen. The Eucharist is celebrated, all of that. But Jesus is right now on our border, our southern border. Mm -hmm. Jesus is in Israel and Palestine. Jesus is with the refugees in Syria, right? And so on and so forth. Mm. So I think especially as Franciscans, but really any of us who say that we identify as Christian, our call is to be in the spaces where maybe society doesn't want us to be. But that's where we find Jesus. That's where we find our church. Mm -hmm. As you talk about the margins and the tensions of like the church being on the margins, but the church is the margins and da 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 da. Some of what I'm hearing there is sort of an invitation to have a unitive consciousness about things and like a non-dual mind. And it's not an us versus them mentality, but it's like actually recognizing that if you're, viewing humanity and society through the lens of Christ, then we're all in this together. There's no margins, but it's our sin and it's our human tendencies that tends to break things into these divisions where we push people to the edges and to the sides. But if we're thinking about the humanity or all of creation through the lens of Christ, the poorest and the most oppressed are actually at the center Is that Mm -hmm. what you're talking about? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of my favorite teaching tools is the the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And and you go through the the Good Samaritan that there were two people that knew the law that just passed by the poor guy who was left for dead on the side of the road. And it was the third person, the person from Samaria, right, that actually responds to. And the whole parable has to do with the question that a scribe asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you say? The scholar says, love God and love your neighbor, Mm -hmm. right? And Jesus says, you've done well. But then, of course, the scribe is like, but what's my neighbor? And of course, he's coming out of a mindset that my neighbor are literally the people that are right around me, or the people that are comfortable, that I'm comfortable with, or the people that I like. Mm -hmm. The parable really tells us that everyone everyone is our neighbor. Yeah. So what's happening in Israel and Palestine at this moment and the suffering of the people there, that's my family. Those are my neighbors. And I need to be responding to that. 
it's an interesting call that we need to move beyond just the comfort zones, right? Right, right. And if I throw in the Franciscan piece to it, right? Francis called everyone brother and sister. Everyone is family. So then truly that is my family that's suffering. So the the homeless man that likes to beg for food down the street from my university here, as well as those who are in Palestine, right? Or the, the floods in Morocco or the earthquakes and all that. They are my neighbors. They're my brothers and sisters. I can't be an authentic Christian if I'm not helping and reaching out. Mm. How do you do that? I mean, mm. if you're like, really thinking about the world that way. Yeah. Which I know you are, and I am trying to as well. The temptation is to go to a space of being overwhelmed and a space of powerlessness, Mm -hmm. and then to just freeze up and actually not respond. So how do you balance that empathy, that care, that fraternity that you're talking about with the fact that you're just one and you're there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know if I thought that my going over to the Middle East would bring peace, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Right. But I have no arrogance to believe that I can resolve that. What I get to do and what I tell folks about is that we can't let the enormity of it keep us from doing nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. It's so easy to say, Oh, immigration, it's such a mess in our country. I can't do anything about it. And then we just dismiss it. That's probably the biggest sin, I think, for Christians is that we just say, "Mm, not mine to deal with. And we walk away. For me, and what I tell folks to do is it's it's about finding how you, in the context of your everydayness, can engage in making changes or doing what you can to help. So I'm a professor first and foremost here at Viterbo. I'm also the mission officer. So I get to do a lot of programming. I get to do a lot of teaching. And what I believe my call is, is to teach my students this very thing that we're talking about. So at my university, we're always taking students out. We don't do uh, fun vacation trips. We do service trips. We go out to the margins. And by my teaching my students about that, and really I say teaching them, they have big hearts when they come to the university, but by helping sort of cultivate that, they're going to go off and be teachers and nurses and performers and, you know, fill in the blank with all the majors Mm -hmm. that can affect the world. Mm -hmm. So by my teaching it, I get to help students do great things after they leave the university. And I believe if we have enough people and we bring enough people together around issues, we can, we can resolve some of these issues. Mm. Well, I think that even in the last 10, 15 years in our life, there's been transformation. We're in a different age of reckoning at this time when it comes to racial justice, ecological justice, inclusion of different folks into communities. What are you learning and discovering in your role as the executive director of Mission and Social Justice there at Viterbo University about the complexities of creating an inclusive community and advocating for systemic justice? What concerns me about society, I'll start with that part and then get into all the good, um, is that our country in particular has moved to a sort of a a reductionist view of things or a sort of a black and white view Mm. that something is either this or that. Yeah. 
And there's very rarely any social justice issue that is this or that, that's black and white. Mm -hmm. If things were black and white, we would have solved them, right? If homelessness was just something that was easy to unpack, there would be no homeless, right? Mm -hmm. I encounter a lot of black and white thinking. Um, Students who are wonderful human beings but have sort of been taught or they see in social media that things are either black or white. When I work with the community, I'm seeing that black and white thinking more and more. So one of the best things that I can do as a professor and in my role is to help people understand that there is a complexity. There's not just a one or two off solution, Hmm. right? And that it's going to take all of us together working to figure things out. That's probably the biggest learning that I've had right now is just trying to help folks understand that there aren't easy answers and you can't write things off mm-hmm. as black or white. Like I said, homelessness, right? I love what La Crosse, Wisconsin is trying to do around homelessness. We have a huge number of agencies, right? And faith communities that are coming together and working together to see if we can address the homelessness crisis in La Crosse. And it's going to take all of us plus other people that we need to bring to the table for us to be able to do anything. As you talk about like moving from this black and white mindset into a place of complexity, what I'm thinking about is the importance of folks developing critical thinking skills and developing a maturity of faith. If a faith is more mature, people are less likely to think about belief through black and white ideas. And I wonder if there's also sort of this invitation of movement, moving from a place of like, judgment to compassion or something. I mean, obviously we want to know like this is wrong and we want to stand up against things that are wrong, but we want to have compassion and care for all people on all sides of the issue and recognize that all the people involved have different stories and experiences and they all deserve to be reverenced and cared for no matter where they stand. One of the challenges to that is where do we get our information? Right. I discovered that my students primarily get their information from social media. Hmm. But I can also say that a lot of the adults that I talk to get their information from just one news source. Hmm. That's where I think we get into some black and white thinking. Or we're susceptible to really biased news stories that we accept as kind of universally true. We have to be able to look at things from a variety of different angles, right? So part of what I do is helping my students just even how to critically evaluate sources, but that we need to be going to a variety of sources to understand. It's a real challenge. Mm. It's it's a real challenge on our campus. It's a real challenge for our, our country, I think. And I think when we don't get exposed to people's stories that way, Mm -hmm. you know, I quickly see a news blip that says, Catholic church hates this group. And then I just assume the Catholic church hates the group. I don't do any research. And then I'm just angry at the Catholic church. Mm. And we don't actually understand what the church teaches or how to evaluate. Maybe that was a a priest that said something, but that's not what the church teaches. Same thing can apply for all social justice issues. Mm. Are you telling me that our society has just sort of become intellectually lazy? Yes. 
Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, right? And, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean to insult people out there. But I'm saying it, the society, the culture. I mean, something has shifted, yeah. right? Well, it's fascinating to me that there is uh, no better time in history to have access to information than right now. Yeah, access to more information than any other culture, any other civilization has ever had. Mm-hmm. And yet we don't access it. Mm-hmm. We stick in our very limited viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we often seek out the information that just confirms what we already think. Yeah. So we don't do the work. I think the perfect example is politics. People who will vote for one party or vote for a candidate just because they belong to one party. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing the research, which the Catholic Church invites us to do, the research and the prayer to say, which of these candidates, you know, when you go down the ballot, even here in the state of Wisconsin, you can just vote one party and then you don't have to fill out anything else in the ballot. Hmm. To me, that's that's more problematic. It's not so much about who you choose to vote for. Like everyone has their freedom to do that. Mm-hmm. But when we don't actually do the work for ourselves to find out who these candidates are, or we don't do the work ourselves to understand you know, maybe I'm just getting this single narrative about homeless being a problem, or they just cause crime, or instead of doing the research and saying, hmm, I wonder why people are homeless to begin with and doing that work, we easily disregard social justice issues and the people that are caught in them, mm. because we don't do this work. Mm. So this is part of the vocation of being a Christian, is to do the messy work of research. And learning. Absolutely. Another part of the Franciscan charism that we haven't touched on is what we call the call to conversion and Mm -hmm. how we have committed to really being people that are on a journey of growth and development all the time to deepening our relationship with Christ, but also learning and growing, opening our hearts and our minds to more and more as we grow. How do you teach college kids about conversion today? Excuse me, I shouldn't say college kids, college students. That's a good one. It's interesting that we use the word conversion because there's a lot of attempts for conversion out there, but it's often people thinking that they can change someone else's mind. Yeah, That tends to be uh, how my students view conversion. I think that's how a lot of people view conversion. But conversion in the Franciscan sense, right, is about just going inward and looking at yourself, but reevaluating always what do I know? What do I not know? And it sounds strange to evaluate what you don't know. But to say, I need to keep growing, I need to keep developing. And with that new growth, with that new development, with the new information, I have to keep changing. We're not static people. I'm certainly not the person I was in college. (laughs) I'm really glad I'm not the person I was in college, right? Yeah, me too. I mean, I didn't know you then, but I'm just assuming. (laughs) (laughs) How do we have the humility to say, maybe I don't know it all. Maybe I need to look at something. And it's a challenge with my students just because that inner self-reflection is just, it's an interesting place developmentally for 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. Right. And I thought when I was in college, I knew everything. I knew what was going on. I knew stuff. My challenge is how do I keep helping my students understand that they don't know at all? A lot of things I teach are about self-reflection. 
You know, how do you reevaluate your values? How do you understand where your values come from? Who shaped your values, right? Have you interacted with people that have different values? That's kind of the first step, I think, to helping them understand the need for conversion. I use the image of conversion as like a constant turning. We need to be turning to God, right? And God is everywhere, but, you know, let's, for this, you know, God's facing front. When we stay stagnant in what we believe, we're essentially turning our backs on God because we're not taking in the fullness of who God is. We have to constantly be turning to find God. And that for me is conversion, I guess. Mm. That constant turning and that constant understanding that our God is not a static God. Our God is a constantly moving and evolving. The spirit is moving in all sorts of ways. If we're not moving too, then we're going to miss the spirit. Laura, how do you know and love God hmm. now? And how has that shifted for you over the years? Yeah, I I always knew God was there. I didn't always think as a child that God was talking to me, hmm. right? I, I always believed in God, and I think I believed in more of the static God, right? Go to church and God was there. And And this actually is part of my discernment story, right? Is this coming to know and understand God? You know, I'd hear scripture stories, or I'd hear people's stories about they had these huge signs from God. So I would play this game when I was a kid. Okay, God, if you're there, you know, give me a sign. And I was looking for like the burning bush or James Earl Jones's voice. That's how I envisioned God's voice, right? Is that deep voice that comes out of the clouds and never heard God's voice. Until I was in college. I was praying about this, God, are you really there? I was doing the whole questioning whether God even existed or not. And I was a music major in college. And so one day I was sitting down in my wonderful beanbag chair and my bead curtains because I was a cool college student, right, with my bead curtains. (laughs) That's what made you cool. (laughs) Yeah, very much so. And my life-size cutout of Troy Aikman, Dallas Cowboy quarterback. (laughs) I was going to marry him, but he got married. I became a nun. It worked well for us. (laughs) I was listening to a piece of Beethoven music, prepping for my music history exam. Mm -hmm. And the best thing I can tell you is that it was like I was sitting on the beach and the music was like water and it just washed over me. And it was like I was floating in the music. And in that moment, not only did I know that God existed, but I knew that God loved me and that God was always been present and talking to me in my life. And so that really opened things up for me that I understand God's love in a variety of different ways. But primarily where where I need to go to connect with God is in music. Mm-hmm. How that's evolved for me in religious life, right, is that I, I think certainly God in music is fantastic, but I find God also in community, in being with others, where I think in college, while this was wonderful experience, it was also about me and God, just Mm -hmm. me and God, right? You have your own relationship, Julia. I have my own relationship. As I've lived this religious life, it's about God in community, how God is present when two or three are gathered. Mm -hmm. That's where I, I tend to feel God's love a lot as well. I knew we would come back to community. I'm glad you brought us there. <laughs> it's what we are called to do is to be in community. So. Yeah. And I mean, here we are on 
messy Jesus business where we are contemplating together the struggles of living the gospel. The gospel is calling us to live a life in community. Mm -hmm. You and I are part of the same community and it's amazing. And we both know that it's also complex and messy, Mm -hmm. especially as we go through collective conversion, right? So as the community seems to always be in flux and shifting and we are constantly learning anew together who we are Mm -hmm. and how we're responding to the needs of the world and each other. At the same time, we're getting older and we're falling apart and and new people are joining us. And like, there's always so much happening. Yes. So what is your sense of how God's love is present in community? Well, the messiness, right? Mm. So I, again, I go back to where two or three are gathered you know, God is there. It's wonderful to say, yes, we love God and God is present when everything's going well. But it's in the sharing of the struggles and the hardship. I think that's where I see God the most in our community. And it's kind of paradoxical because you would think you would find God in the beautiful, but God is very much in the broken. Hmm. There's the Eucharist for you again. Absolutely, right? And you know something a little bit there about the broken body and the brokenness, right? With your future forthcoming book. Right. Right. But um, it's, it's after like a really tough day where, you know, I haven't necessarily gotten along with a sister or I've really struggled with something. Um, And I sit and I reflect and I realize that in those moments, grace was with us as well, that God's abundant grace helps and guides us. Mm. And it doesn't always feel good. It's not the warm, fuzzy stuff. It's not the screaming hallelujah. I think there's that song, Leonard Cohen, I think was the first author, but there's a, there's a number that have covered the song hallelujah. Mm-hmm. But there's a wonderful phrase in there that says, It's a cold and broken alleluia that David cried out a cold and broken alleluia. Mm. And that in our struggles and in our brokenness and messiness, that God is there too. And we, we give our lives, we give our lives to God. We give our whole life, the beautiful parts of ourselves and the not so beautiful parts. And that God loves us no matter. Yeah. So even when community isn't, functioning as well, or we're not always getting along with each other. God is there and we're still praising God just by being in and being authentic to who we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're back full circle to the Franciscan charism and relationship. And the FSPA charism in particular is about being present to one another. Mm -hmm. So we're with each other in the brokenness. We are imitating Christ We are open to ongoing conversion and transformation and growth, and we're willing to do the work and study and learn and grow as as we're called to do. And I think that we're willing to do the work. That's the most important thing. Mm. If there's not a willingness, how can you engage? We have to be willing to do that work and to be with that brokenness. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's so counter-cultural, right? It's so counter-intuitive. Our culture teaches us to protect ourselves, to to be strong and independent, to act like we have it all together all the time. (laughs) It's vulnerability is like the opposite of what we're taught, even, I mean, to attack the institution that you're part of in education where we're like, no, I know the right answer and I will speak it confidently. I watch news sometimes at night and you see the commercials and all these health commercials, if you take this pill, this will happen, right? Or if you use this cream, then you won't have wrinkles and we can prolong the aging and we can't, Mm -hmm. right? And one of the gifts, as you well know, of our sisters and our older community is the gift of our sisters living into the reality of who they are, right? And that they don't take pills to try to make the wrinkles go away or that death is a part of life Mm -hmm. and that they are so vulnerable and honest with us in their health. And in every single one of those stories, they're still always praising God. Like God is present in their lives, Mm -hmm. even in the difficulties of aging, right? And in each of our lives, no matter mm-hmm. how much we're aging or declining or shifting along the way. Absolutely. Yeah. What else would you like to say about the messiness of gospel living? I just pray that people are willing to engage, mm. step into the mess, step into the chaos. Mm. Was it uh, Pope Francis that said that compassion is the willingness to enter into other people's messiness? Mm. I just hope that people are willing to enter into their own messiness mm. and know that God is there. And that we're there, that Christians are there to support one another in that chaos. Yeah. No matter how hard or beautiful it may be. Absolutely. Amen. 100%. Thank you so much, Sister Laura, for coming on Messy Jesus Business. Hey, thanks for your ministry. (laughs) Thanks for yours, sister. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.